You are listening to LEC Online Church, a ministry of Lake Erie Church in Madison, Ohio. We are a multicultural, multi-generational Pentecostal church. For more information, please visit our website at lakeeriechurch.com. Now, we hope you enjoy today's message. It was a strange reading, and here's why it was a strange reading. When Paul wrote the letter to the Corinthians that we're looking at this summer, he wrote it as a letter. The chapter and verse designations that you have in your Bible weren't there. It was one continuous letter written from Paul's hand to the people. In the same way that you would might write a letter or an email, it would be sentence and paragraph after paragraph with a recurring theme and the flow of a document from beginning to end. Sometimes when we read the Bible and we get to a chapter mark, we think that we're entering into another topic. And the translators, I'm sure, did their best to try to separate topical issues in these letters and books of the Bible. But when they were written, they were written as one continuous theme. And you'll see why that's so important today. The reason that I had Elder Joey start in verse 18 of chapter 4 is that the first verse in chapter 5 is not the beginning of the topic. And it will mess with you if you think that that's where it starts. It actually starts in verse 18. What Paul is trying to talk about begins in chapter, in chapter 4, verse 18. Let me read it to you again. He says, some of you, talking about the people at the church in Corinth, some of you have become arrogant, thinking that I will not visit you, but I will come. And he goes on about that. He says, I'm going to come and figure out if these arrogant people in the church are just pretentious speakers. Just people talking. Because he said the kingdom of God is not about who talks the most. It's about the power of God. And what Paul is trying to get at is the real issue of what's going on at Corinth and what is giving them the most problem. Now this is not a chapter about sex. You would read that first verse and think, oh man, we're going to get into a whole lot of sexual stuff. No, it's not. This chapter is not about sex, even though there is a description of a terrible thing that's happening. Chapter 5 begins with that shocking announcement of the depravity of what's going on in the church. Apparently, a man in fellowship with the body was living in open sin. And here's the, here's the part that is so shocking as Paul said, what he's doing, sinners won't even do. People out there who are pagans, who don't believe in God, they don't even do this stuff. Now, have you noticed that it's getting harder and harder to shock you about the things that people do? You probably saw on the news a few weeks ago about a young girl here in the greater Cleveland area who left her daughter, her 16-month-old daughter, in the house alone while she went on vacation. And the baby died of dehydration while she was gone. 
the torture in my mind is to think about that child in those closing hours in that, in that moment wondering, where's my mother? Where's the person who's supposed to take care? It was shocking when I heard it. And I've read all the various articles. I've researched it. I've read everything I could find out. Not only did she go on one vacation, but she went on two locations while her baby was dying in the house. And it's, uh, it's shocking. Just this week, I've been trying to help a family in Florida who's dealing with a crisis in their own life. A very shocking revelation that came out about a death in their family. But as shocking as verse 1 is in chapter 5, what is messing with Paul, what Paul wants to make sure this church understands is that there's something loose in this church that if they don't deal with it, it will be lethal. It will destroy them. And the thing that Paul's trying to get at is their pride. Notice what it says in verse 6. Well, start with verse 2. He says, you are so proud of yourselves. He says, I can't even believe what I'm hearing about what's going on in your church. And the problem is you're proud of it. You ought to be mourning in sorrow and shame. He says in verse 6, he says, you're boasting about this is terrible. What are they boasting about? They're boasting about the fact that they're so superior in their spiritual knowledge that they can manage all of this on their own. And Paul says it's going to be like a cancer and it's going to destroy your church. It's going to destroy the work of the church. Now the people of Corinth, and we've said this so many different times, The people who are being saved and coming to this church are coming out of a culture that is obsessed with self-promotion. They're a progressive community. They are a mixing, melting pot of different ethnicities and religions and theologies and philosophies. And there probably were people in this church who thought that this was okay. They thought it was all right. And Paul says, listen, you're missing the point. You're allowing things to happen and you're bragging about it. You're you're excited about it. You think it's a good thing. When I first read this chapter, I kept talking to Pastor Dustin about what I was reading to make sure that I was reading it the proper way because what I see is that Paul wants you and I to understand that there are two very powerful competing forces in your heart. Two very powerful competing forces that are always at work in your heart, whether you're 12 or 22 or 72. And those two things are pride and humility. One is spiritual, humility. One is natural, and it's pride. John says in his letter, 1 John chapter 2, he said, there are, said everything that is in the world is consumed in these three things. Lust of the eye, lust of the flesh, the pride of life. All sin originates in those three areas. And you're always competing. And lest anybody who hears me in this moment, anybody that's sitting here or watching me or listening to me in a podcast, unless you think that I'm just talking about people out there, this is about us. 
This is about us that sit in this room constantly dealing with this competing force of our pride versus our humility. So to help us, let's define both terms. St. Thomas Aquinas, a 13th century priest, once defined pride as that obsessive desire for one's own self that rejects submission to God. Let me read that again. An excessive desire for one's own self which rejects submission to God. At its core, pride is that improper and excessive self-esteem. It's too much of me and not enough of God. It's the elevation of my opinion and my thoughts above God's word. Pride is the deadliest of all sins because it leads us to every other sin. Pride leads us to all sin. It shows up first in the Garden of Eden. In fact, if you want to see pride in its basic form, read the story of the conversation between the serpent and Eve. Because what the serpent is able to do is ignite something in Eve's heart that had laid dormant. It was there, but it was dormant until the serpent ignited it with his words. They're on the screen. I want to read them to you and I want you to see if you can find it. Verse 4, then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows in the day that you eat of it, talking about the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, That it was pleasant to the eyes, notice this, and a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate it also. What the serpent was able to do was to ignite in Eve the desire to be like God. And it goes even further. It's not that I want to be like God. Pride forces me to say, I want to be God. I want to be in charge of my life. Reminds me of my granddaughter Sadie. Now she's 14 now. She thinks she's 26, but she's only 14. And whenever she used to come and stay with me, and she would you know, meet somewhere and pick her up, her father would say to her every time, now Sadie... You have a wonderful time. Let me ask you one question. Who's in charge? And Sadie would meekly say, Papa's in charge. Say it again, Sadie. Who's in charge? Papa's in charge. And one day I asked my son, he said, because Sadie wants to be in charge. In fact, her mother told me one time that when they were praying, they were talking about something they could ask for, for the Lord. Sadie said, Lord, I want to be the adult that's in charge. 
was tired of people telling her when to go to bed or what to wear. But that's a child. But that's also the way many of us live our own lives. We struggle, we chafe, we, we resist giving over control of our life. And the enemy knows that within us is this competing force that if it can be triggered, if it can be ignited as it was with Eve, we likewise have a desire to be like God. What about humility? Well, humility is one of those things that's very difficult to describe. The challenge is, the, the, the reality is, though, when you meet a humble person, you know that's a humble person, but it's hard to define it. Cambridge Dictionary defines it as the feeling or attitude that one has no special importance that makes them better than other people. C.S. Lewis was noted to say that humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but as thinking of ourselves less. Paul, writing to the Philippians in chapter 2, says, Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress other people. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. You know, the challenge with humility, we, we exalt humility as a value in our culture. We, we admire humble people. There are some people here in our church who have a, a humble spirit and it's admirable. The problem with that is that humble people don't want to be recognized. We honor and recognize humility as a value in our culture, in our community here. But the problem is that really humble people don't want you to... Notice them. So these competing forces that are going on in our lives, your life and my life, one is humility, the other is pride. One is natural, one is spiritual. Pride says, I know that it's wrong to have sex outside of marriage, but this is what I want to do. Humility says, I can wait. Because I trust that God's plan is the best plan for me. Pride says, they're the ones that offended me. Why should I have to go to them first? Humility says, I have been forgiven by God. And I cannot let my relationship with my brother or my sister be lost over this. Pride says, it may be God's plan for me to tithe my income, but my needs come first, and then if there's anything else left. Humility says, I don't have anything without God's grace, so I give my first fruits to God as an act of worship. We've said this for many, many weeks now as we've been going through Corinthians. But the Christian life comes down very simply to whose interest and whose purposes are going to be pursued. The carnal mind says, the fleshly mind says, I will choose to do what I want to do. 
Because I am the God of my own thought processes, my own actions, my own behavior. I do what I want to do. Humility says I surrender all to God and pursue His plans and His purposes for my life. So let's talk about two very simple sentences and then we'll be done this morning. Let's contrast the two now that we've defined them. Number one, pride is consumed with control. Everybody say control. I like the way you said that. Control. Humility is about submission. Pride is about control. Humility is about submission. When pride takes root in our heart, when it becomes inflamed in our hearts, we untether from God's plans. We disconnect from His revelation through His Word. And we begin to replace God with our plans and our self-revelations. And then our goals in life is to do what feels good to me. If it feels good, do it. That was the motto a few years ago, wasn't it? And yet I don't think any of us really truly believe that. If we do, just let somebody that wants to run into our car, just run into our car and say, oh, it felt good and I did it. Nobody lives that way. But the philosophy of life is if it feels good to me, then I do it. When we untether from God's plans, then we choose the things that we think make us happy. We're pursuing this elusive happiness. We want to be happy. I've heard people say that for years. I want to be happy. I was talking several years ago with a, a young lady. I was trying to, we were trying to disciple her. And she had made a decision to move in with her boyfriend and, and he was pressuring her to make this choice and, and she was conflicted. And I, and I said to her, I said, why do you feel that you must give in to this pressure? She said, I want to be happy and this makes me happy. Surely, she said, God wants me to be happy. And I said what I'm saying to you. There is nothing in that Bible that promises you that God's purpose is to make you happy. It's not not even plausible to say God wants me to be happy. God wants you to be fruitful. God wants you to be holy. God wants you to go to heaven. But He's not just focused on making sure that you're happy. And what happiness could there be in living in opposition to God's plans. How happy could you possibly be in living your life in direct opposition to what God says that He wants for your life? Pride is consumed with control. Proverbs 16 and 2 says, All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. Sinful pride causes us to take credit for what we have and who we are. Just earlier in chapter 4, Paul makes this declaration. He said, don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time before the Lord returns, for He will bring out our darkest secrets to light and reveal the private motives. 
Then God will give to each one whatever praise is due. For what gives you the right to make such a judgment? What do you have that God has not given you? And if everything you have is from God, why boast as though it were not a gift? And then he goes on to talk about them. He says, you think that you already have everything that you need. You think that you're already rich. Pride does that. But humility submits itself to God. And maybe that's where our problem is. We struggle with submitting. We struggle with surrendering. God gave us such a drive to live and to to produce and to achieve that we struggle when we come up to those places where we surrender ourselves and our plans to God. Some of you sitting here this morning are making decisions about the future and you you understand the way that you're being indoctrinated by the culture that you must go this path, you must go to this school, you must choose this career path. What if God wants something different? What if God has a different plan? How hard it is at times to say, I know that this makes sense to a lot of people, but this is what God is saying. This is what God wants for my life. Listen to Peter's words in 1 Peter 5. He said, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. What does it mean to be clothed with humility? It's an act of personal, complete surrender. Here's some examples. When we we take on the cloak of humility, we create peace and unity with other people. Humility humility embraces the concept I don't have to win every argument. You hear that, Shelly? Now be careful, be careful. Some of you have the gift of misinterpretation. Humility Humility says I don't have to always be right. You know, I know, I know people, and you do too, that'll fight you to the end until they get the last word. That's pride. I know people that will fight to win the argument to the, to the detriment of the relationship. That's pride. Humility, that cloak of humility, Peter says, it allows us to have peace and unity. With others. It means that with the right spirit, Pastor Jerome and I can disagree and still greatly love and admire each other because there's unity in the heart and the way that we live our particular life. It it doesn't have to always be my way. When we are clothed with humility, we are able to accept correction. And encouragement. You know when you. When you have somebody in your life. Who's trying to help you. 
Let me speak to you young people, you teenagers. Listen to me. When you have an adult in your life who genuinely cares about you, and they're trying to help you, Peter says, submit yourself to them. Accept the correction. It's not that, it's not that they're mean, it's that they care for your soul. You know, sometimes I struggle as pastor when I, when I have to get embroiled in something with somebody and try to help them to navigate. And some of you have been there with me in those situations. It's not that I'm trying to impose my will. It's not that I'm trying to be harsh, but I'm watching for your soul. I'm watching for what God's Word says. And in humility, Peter says, we just accept, we submit. And in doing so, we are able to be encouraged by the instructions of others. When we embrace humility, we allow ourselves to be connected to the person that we were genuinely created to be. We'll talk about this in, I believe, in two weeks. But in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, You were bought with a price. Don't be a slave to anything. You're bought with a price. Here's the second and final statement. Pride worships self. Humility worships God. Pride worships itself. Humility worships God. Pride tempts us to seek glory for ourselves. To promote ourselves and hope that we get noticed. I mean no disrespect, but it doesn't really matter who gets the glory. It doesn't matter who gets noticed, who gets the pen or the button or the plaque or the ribbon. The only glory belongs to God. We're just servants of the Lord. And yet we can get caught up at times because we get frustrated that people aren't noticing us. They're not noticing what we're doing. They're not acknowledging how hard we work or what we are doing. It's pride that causes us to be frustrated like that. Because we have this natural need wanting people to notice us. Maybe it's why we wear some of the clothes that we wear. Maybe it's the way that we present ourselves sometimes. Because we want people to notice us. We need people to acknowledge us that we're here. And it's the pride inside of us that has to be submitted to God and repented of and brought under subjection so that we don't become so consumed that we move away from understanding that who we are and what we are and what we possess, all of it comes from God. And we don't need the accolades of others to be complete. Pride will keep us from noticing the needs of other people. So easy to walk in a room like this with several hundreds of people here and be just disconnected from the community of, of relationship with people. You know, things go on. We try to communicate as well as we can. We probably don't do it the best, but we try to make sure people know what we know when we know it. But sometimes it gets lost. 
But it's this idea of we genuinely care about one another. We genuinely care about what's happening with people when they need us, when they need prayer, when they need support. And we try to do that with our elders and our staff and our SLT. We try to be connected. But pride will keep us from being so focused on ourselves that we come in and we go out and we never connect with anybody around us. Pride will keep us from putting ourselves in the shoes of those who are suffering or recognizing the needs of hurting people that are around us. The reason is that we can't see these needs is because we're so focused on ourselves. Humility continues to observe and look and seek for those that are in trouble and those who have needs and those who need to be encouraged. Our pride keeps absorbing us. All of our energy, all of our agenda, everything that we do is about ourselves. Listen to these strong words from James in James chapter 4. They'll be on the screen. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take, take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are wrong. You only want what will give you pleasure. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate about the spirit he placed within us should be faithful to him. And he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands Purify your heart, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. You know, one way to know if there's an imbalance of pride in our lives is to keep asking the question, what is my motive? What am I doing this for? What's driving me to do this? Why am I doing it? Let me wrap up this morning by answering the question, how do I get pride under control in my life? You know, John said in one of, the, one of his letters, he said, if we say that we have no sin, we lie. And I know that's hard for some people to embrace. But the fact of the matter is, every person in this room deals with pride. Every person in this room has his battle, her battle, with issues of pride. And the way that you position yourself for the blessings of God and the graciousness of God is to create before God a humble spirit that submits yourself to God first. Does it mean that in being humble I won't be able to enjoy life? No. But it means that you will seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And then all of these things Jesus said would be added unto you. I was just reading a few weeks ago a brilliant author who was writing about pride. 
And he offers these eight things. I think there's eight of them here. If you're dealing with pride. He says, acknowledge and confess your sin to God. The sin of pride needs to be confessed and acknowledged. God, I've got a problem with pride in my life. I acknowledge that and I ask for forgiveness. And guess what? Just like we say every Sunday, if you're sincere, when you ask for forgiveness, God forgives you. Acknowledge your sin before God. He said, be patient in times of suffering or persecution. When times are hard, a man on the phone said to me this week, he said, I don't get God. He said, I'm sorry, Pastor, I'm not trying to be offensive, but I don't get God. Why doesn't God do something to relieve the pressure that I'm under? Why isn't God doing something to fix all of this? I, I just, I, I'm, I'm just consumed with it. And I said to him, just be patient. Be patient. And I know it makes no sense when you're going through it, but God knows where you are. Humility is submitting yourself and saying, God, I don't get it. I don't understand it. But I trust you. Thirdly, he said to overcome sinful pride, one must submit to spiritual authority. It doesn't mean that people tell you what to do, but it means that you put yourself up under the authority of someone who can help you to guide you and direct you in the way that you should. You don't resist instruction. You don't re- resist the, uh, the encouragement and the guidance that come from people who are mature, spiritually mature, who can help you along the way. And maybe, maybe, maybe this morning you just need to find somebody like that. You need to find somebody and say, listen, can you help me? You've been serving the Lord longer than I have. You, you've been walking with God all these years. Could you help me? I bet you you'll find that they will. I'm sure that they will. They'll come alongside and help. And and the writer said, just submit yourself to that. Give yourself to the authority of someone spiritually over you in the Lord. Receive instruction with a tender spirit. That's not always easy. Forgive others quickly. Forgive others quickly. Practice gratitude in everything. See, all of these are heart issues. Things in my heart. Am I bearing a grievance and a a burden against an offense against someone else? Or I know that someone has an offense against me. Make it right. Forgive quickly. Practice gratitude. I used to do a lot of driving when I was in a different job. And I used to carry my boys around with me oftentimes when I would travel. And one of the things that we would do is we'd play a game where we'd pick a letter in the alphabet. And then you had to come up with at least four things that you were grateful for that started with that letter. So one day I said to my son Jason, I said, Jason, your letter is F. You need four things that you're grateful for that begin with the letter F. Immediately he went, food, family, fun, feet. 
And I thought, that's pretty cool. I'm glad I have my feet, don't you? Number seven, always speak well of other people. It's so easy in a church to get caught up in conversations that demean other people. You know how you stop that? If you're in a place and people are talking about somebody else, you say, can we wait just a minute? Let me go get that person and bring them here so we can have them in the conversation. Always speak well of other people. How encouraging would it be to know that if somebody's talking about you today, they're speaking well of you. And then lastly, he says, and most importantly of all, is to embrace the cross. Embrace the cross. If there is one recurring theme throughout all of 1 Corinthians, there's several major things, but the, the most critical thing, Paul keeps telling the Corinthians, don't miss the point. It's all about Calvary's cross. Some of these issues, they're, they're big issues, big things we got to deal with. But if we keep the cross at the center, if we keep what Jesus did for our lives at the forefront, if we keep reminding ourselves that we have been bought with a price, that Jesus Christ died so that we might have life, that we have been transformed. We'll talk about this next week, but we've been transformed by the power of God. My dad's 87. I wish he were here this morning. I'd have him sing it for you. But all of my life, I grew up with my dad singing an old, old song called Thanks to Calvary. And the words go a little bit like this. Today I went back to the house where I used to live. I saw the same old crowd I used to see before. My little boy ran and hid behind the door. And I said, son, don't be afraid. We don't live here anymore. Thanks to Calvary, I'm not the man I used to be. Thanks to Calvary, things are different than before. As the tears run down my face, I try to tell them, thanks to Calvary, I don't live here anymore. There's a transformation that has taken place. If you knew me before, you wouldn't even know I'm the same guy. But the blood of Jesus, the, Cal the power of Calvary's cross has changed and transformed my, own, my whole life. And I live in the newness of what it means to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that makes all the difference in the world. We hope you were blessed by today's message. Now we invite you to visit one of our services soon. For more information, please visit us at lakeeriechurch.com.